How's everybody? Everybody's seeing summer when they walk outside this morning. Like, it's hard to get people inside of a building in the middle of the summer. Um, two things I want to get, uh, I want to talk through this morning. One is the sermon, which will take about 90 minutes. So uh, prior to that, uh, I, I want to give you guys a quick update on the building. Some of you maybe haven't been around long enough to even know that we're in the process of purchasing a building. Some of you have been around for those discussions and maybe don't know where we're at in that. And honestly, I've really struggled through this whole process because if you at all have been around uh, church you're in your life, you've probably heard of capital campaigns and you know the formats churches go through to raise money which uh, for us, you know, has been kind of like, ah, like gag me. I don't want to go through a process like that. I just trust that the Lord is going to provide for the thing that he put before us. And for those of you who haven't been around super long, this church has been in existence for almost 11 years in its entirety. Five years ago when we started the, the Coeur d'Alene campus, we actually started it in the Little Red Chapel on the NIC campus down there. there's It sat about 35 people. Uh, there was no kids' ministry. It had no bathroom. And so you literally, if you were a family, you could not check your kids in. And if you had to use the bathroom, you literally had to wait until the end of the service. And it was a horrible setup. So about a year into that, we ended up moving from the Little Red Chapel to uh, First Baptist Church on Fifth and Wallace. We did that on the evenings. And then as things kind of grew there, we were trying to figure out what our next step would be and realizing that young families just did not have uh, a place to go downtown on Sunday nights because it was really hard to get kids and everybody um, there on Sunday nights. And so we made the leap to come here to the Boys and Girls Club about two and a half years ago. And so since then, you know, like last weekend we had almost 600 people and 140 kids in the kids wing and it was just we're bursting at the seams and we're realizing um, that this place cannot house us long term. Right now we're, we have an office space downtown that we rent on Thursday nights, like our, the, the bed stuff that's going on is happening at a hotel in Riverstone. Um, we're using First Baptist for some stuff and then we're renting out uh, the Boys and Girls Club on Sundays and now on Sunday evenings to do Rooted. And so it's just been really hard to feel like we're settled and we have a home. And so as we've been going through this process for five months, uh, it's been really amazing to see the Lord open the doors for this building purchase. I mean, like every door that we had to walk through has literally been swung open, and it's been miraculous and awesome to watch, but sort of leaves us at a, as a, play, at a place as a church where um, now it's like we got to put the money down to make it happen. And so uh, our building will close on June 15th, and it looks like we will start construction almost immediately, and who knows how long that'll go. Uh, and we probably won't see the inside of that building until the end of the year, but everything's moving forward. And so as our elders and our stewards, and uh, our stewards are like our budget team here, and our staff has been talking through this process, you know, consultants say, like, start a capital campaign, and this is how you need to do it, and find your top 10 givers, and go after those people, and get them to give money, and if you guys have been around for any length of time, you know that for us, it's just, has never been about money, and we never talk about money, and probably err on the side of never talking about money, um, so much so, we had somebody new ask us, like, a few weeks ago, that had been attending for, like, six months, um, do you guys take giving? Like, we just don't even know where you do that, you know, and we just never talk about it. And we've always just believed from day one that the Lord would provide for every need we have, every need we have. And so as we've 
begin to start this process with the building, I just wanted to keep up to date with you guys and be open and transparent with how that's going and where we're at in that process. So the building we're buying is a $2.5 million building, um, which in light of the fact that most of the houses around it are probably going for like a million nowadays, doesn't seem too crazy, but it's $2.5 million. We have $500,000 in cash that um, we've saved up that we're putting down on the building, and so we're basically financing the $2 million plus the construction renovation costs, which are about 500,000 uh, on the building. And so uh, that means as a church, like that's kind of the burden that we're taking on. The amazing thing about this is if you, in light of our finances last year, we ended the year almost $300,000 in the black, like over what we had budgeted. So going into this year, um, as our stewards sat down and created what we think was a conservative budget for the year, they included the mortgage of a building in that budget, and so I'm not saying this to say like, we don't need you guys to give anything because it's taken care of, but like the reality is we're not jumping into a situation where we don't have the finances to back what we're doing. Within our budget now, we could pay the mortgage on this building and everything would be fine. But really our goal is that um, though they're amortizing the loan for us for 25 years, like it really is our prayer that that thing gets paid off in five. And so we are going before the church and just saying like, would you seek the Lord in this with us? Like, we are not a church that's gonna like, like wring your arm for money, but I would say like the Lord's always provided for us and we trust him to go before us in all things so that he will put it on people's hearts who would give and all I'm asking and same thing I would ask of my wife and I and our staff and everybody else is, would we take the time to seek the Lord and ask, hey God, what is it that maybe you would have us give towards this project. And it might be nothing, it might be a dollar, it might be 50 bucks, it doesn't really matter. But we do have a church family that gets to participate in this together. And so um, I would just ask you guys to pray about that. And over the coming weeks, we're gonna have more stuff that we kind of roll out for you guys, like designs for the building, and you guys can kind of see how it's all fitting together. It's almost 14,000 square feet of room, and it does not, it seats almost 300 people in the auditorium, so we're literally going to be bursting at the seams the minute we move into it, but the amazing part about it is we get to finally have a place in downtown Coeur d'Alene in a neighborhood, and I just 10 years ago would have never dreamed or imagined that the Lord would provide the place that he has in the way that he has. Um, one last thing, and then I'll jump in. In November, some of you know, I went uh, on a trip with a bunch of pastors and we spent a few days in a retreat just praying together and um, counseling one another and crying with one another. And, and um, in that, on that trip, I was praying with some pastors one night and we had just come out of, you know, First Baptist was the building we thought we were gonna have and it fell through. And then we put an offer on the one on 11th and Pennsylvania and then it fell through. And a week later after that building had fell, fallen through, I was in Colorado and I was just praying with this group of pastors one night. And this pastor was praying for me and he stopped and he was like, he knew nothing about my situation. He said, Chris, he's like, while we were praying, the Lord just said, um, there's been two doors that have been shut in your life as of late and it's been really discouraging for you, but the Lord wants you to know that the next one is better, that he has something in store for you. And he had no idea and I literally like, to this day, I've never even told him the reality of what was going on in my heart and what we were facing as a church when he prayed that prayer. And, um, and so we're just believing that the Lord has opened the door here. And so I just ask for you guys as our church family 
to pray through this with us. And uh, if the Lord would at all lead you to a place where you'd want to contribute, you can do so on our website. There's a tab on there. There's a general fund and a building fund, and that'll be open, I think, as of today, and you can make gifts there. Uh, So anyway, that's it. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to jump into Matthew 14. You guys all good? Okay. All right, let me, let me pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to sort of rip it apart and get dig into it and really allow your spirit to lead and to guide and to speak to us this morning. God, I have no idea where everybody in this room is at, but I know, Jesus, that we desire to hear from you this morning, just freshly from you this morning. So Jesus, we submit this time to you. God, we even give this building and all these plans and everything to you, Jesus, because we know that it's your church, God, that you're gonna do your thing, and you've asked us to to walk in tandem, step in step with you, Jesus, that you would provide along the way. And so we trust you 100%, God. We give you this time this morning. We pray you'd speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Matthew 14, we're gonna be in this morning, verses one through 12. Um, I want to read that, and then we'll kind of dive into it. So Matthew 14, verse 1. You guys can say a word when you get there. Okay, two of you are there. Awesome. It says this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Uh, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they had held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded uh, in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So for the last few weeks, we've been in uh, in Matthew chapter 13, and we've been talking through the parables of Jesus. And then last week, we come to the end of this section in these parables where we talk about Jesus returning to his hometown in Nazareth and and the people in Nazareth whom Jesus had grown up around, who knew him. But they had one primary question that we kind of wrestled through last weekend, uh, as we see in Matthew 13, verse 54, and it was this. Where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? So the people that grew up around Jesus and knew him were asking this question, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? And so by this time, Jesus' his fame had been rapidly growing, so much so that people were being forced to do something with him. Like, you can't see Jesus, watch him work miracles, hear the teachings he's giving, and not have to look him in the face and try to figure out what you're going to do with Jesus. You had no choice. You can't ignore somebody who's attracting that kind of a following, especially when people are saying that he has power over sickness, that he has power over the spiritual realm. And so last week we saw that, that, that many in Nazareth, what they did when they were forced to respond to Jesus, like when they had to actually look in the face and, and decide what they were going to do, that many people just straight up rejected Jesus. And this week, though, in chapter 14, 
Matthew's going to show us another option of what we can do with Jesus in this person of Herod. And so just to give you a little bit of backstory with regards to Herod, Herod um, is the, the same guy who was fearful of the supposed king that was being born in Israel and sent out to have all the, the infants or all the kids under age two, the males, killed uh, as Jesus was born in order to try to get to Jesus, to have Jesus killed. And so this is not, not the same, that's Herod the Great. This Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, is actually the son of the fourth wife of that Herod. And so now we get to this other Herod who also seems to be a little fearful and a little power hungry. And so when this great Herod died, the one who was literally trying to kill all the, the kids that were under two um, at, at, when Jesus was born, Um, When this great Herod dies, the Romans then take the territory, and the Romans begin to divide his territory up. And so they divide the territory up between his three sons, which is why Herod is referred to as the Tetrarch. It literally means ruler over a fourth. And so the area that this uh, Herod begins to oversee is the area of Galilee and the surrounding areas. So the place where Jesus was kind of centered, his hometown. So like any sort of egomaniac that, that didn't, it didn't sit well with him, that the, the fact that he did not have more power, like he wanted more, he was pleading, asking for more power as a king, like to make him a king, but it was continued to be refused. And so Herod was this man that had a little bit of influence, but not much influence outside of his own jurisdiction, right? He didn't have a ton of influence out of Galilee, but was constantly fighting for more power and more influence, which you sort of see in the trial of Jesus later on, before Jesus' crucifixion. There's this passing of Jesus back and forth between Pilate and Herod. This is the same Herod that gets passed back and forth from Pilate uh, that Jesus gets passed back and forth from. And so this is the Herod that was riddled with insecurities to go along with all of this that we'll see in a little bit. But today, I, I wanted to focus on Herod's answer to that question that we asked last week that was asked in Matthew 13, 54. The same question that these people of Nazareth had to ask themselves, like where did this man get the power and the wisdom that he has? And so this morning, we're gonna see what Herod does as he's forced to sort of respond to Jesus himself. He's confronted by Jesus. He has to decide who is Jesus. And so the, the three questions that I wanna walk through this morning are this. What does Herod do with Jesus? Why does Herod do it? And then the third one is, where does that lead Herod in the end? And so after we answer these, I want to take some time this morning and we're going to sing some worship. We're going to respond. We're going to take communion together and allow the Spirit to do his work within us. So verse 1 says this, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And so despite all of Jesus' best efforts to sort of be subtle, right? He's telling his disciples, don't tell anybody about what you've seen, what you've heard, like they're seeing miracles happen. They're listening to the teaching coming from Jesus' mouth. He's telling them to keep quiet about it, to sort of keep it hidden. He wanted to keep this low profile at this time, but despite Jesus' best efforts to try to keep this low profile, he could not keep things quiet. He could not keep things hidden. Like word about his miracles is, are spreading all throughout the land. Word about his teachings, the things he's saying and claims he's making is spreading all throughout the land. And now it's like reaching the ears of some of the most powerful people in the land. And so what does Herod do with Jesus? Verse two, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work 
in him. And so listen to the way that Matthew states this. It kind of points back to Matthew 13, 54 again. That's why he does these miraculous works because he's John the Baptist. That's how they justify it. He's John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. That's the reason that he does these things. And so Herod hears about the healings. He hears about the exorcisms, all of it. And then just like that, just like the people of, uh, of Nazareth, he knows that he has to do something with this. But he doesn't brush it aside. He doesn't ignore the obvious like we talked about last week for people that just walk away from it. He does something totally different. What he does is he comes up with his own theory. Like he's trying to figure out who this guy is that's standing right before him, right? Who is this man, this, this Jesus? And, and so he, he, again, he doesn't brush him aside, but he comes up with this theory. And so at first glance, Herod's theory doesn't seem so bad because he's connecting John the Baptist with Jesus. He, he's um, making that connection. He's got some sort of a belief in some sort of a resurrection, like maybe John the Baptist has resurrected from the dead. And so he's not ignoring or minimizing the power of Jesus, but he's, sort of, he's just sort of trying to justify what it is he's seeing in his own way. And so what's wrong with Herod's theory that this is John the Baptist that's coming back from the dead? Because basically Herod gets no further than the people that just ignored Jesus. He, he's still missing who Jesus actually is. And as I was thinking about this this week, it's so common for us today to be forced to respond to Jesus and then develop theories about who we think Jesus might be. I mean, there are very few places that you or I could go in this world and not be able to find some sort of unique ideas about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. Like, think about this. In 50 years, all of you in this room will be totally forgotten. Does anybody here know the names of their great-great-grandparents? Any of you? I don't know the names of my great-great-grandparents. Like in 50 years, nobody will know anything about us. But thousands of years later, after the life of Jesus, his fingerprints are still everywhere. People are still talking about Jesus today. People are still trying to account for the miraculous work that he did. His fame, even in our day, is still spreading. Hundreds of millions of people claim to have encountered Jesus in a, person, in a personal way. And so story after story of lives changed and people transformed and the broken being made whole. And just like that, in verse 1, his fame is all around us today. Jesus is still on the move. People are still being forced to do something with Jesus. When you see him, when you experience him, what are you going to do about it? And most of us tend to do what we saw last week. Just ignore it and walk away. Like, I can't make sense of it. I don't know anything about it. Like, I'm just going to ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist. And it's why people in our culture, even if they're not religious, are really stoked these days to talk about spirituality. Like everybody wants to talk about spirituality, but the conversation gets super uncomfortable when you bring Jesus into the spirituality discussion, doesn't it? Because now Jesus is getting very specific. You're not talking about just kind of spirituality, you're talking about Christianity. You're talking about Jesus as God, the savior of the universe. And it's because Jesus always forces the issue. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook easy. Jesus causes us to think and to do something with him. And we as people, as humans, do not like that. We don't like the fact that we have to try to make sense of it and figure out what we're going to do. And I think what, what I see the older I get is more and more people that want several, some level of like spiritual ambiguity in their life. 
Just kind of like, I just want to be a spiritual person. And Jesus is way too specific for me. He's too difficult to be taken seriously. And then they write that stuff off so quick. And so we t- what we tend to do is what Herod did. We, d- we begin to develop theories. We sort of theorize Jesus. We come up with our own personal opinions about who Jesus is. We, we, we call it good, and we're this world full of Herods in that sense, where we're constantly theorizing about who Jesus is and making Jesus up in our own image, it's, which is why there's no end to these theories that you hear about Jesus today. Like, some people attempt to explain Jesus by calling him a moral philosopher. Some people call him a crazy revolutionary. Some people call him a great teacher. Some people call him a powerful prophet. Some people call him a false prophet. Some people call Jesus an angel. Some people call him the son of God, but not God himself. Some people call Jesus an enlightened man, a liar, an illusionist, a figment of people's imagination, a lunatic, a crutch for weak people, a fairy tale, a good example, on and on and on the list goes. These are the theories that get made up about Jesus. And there's all kinds of options for those who want to develop these theories about Jesus. But what's interesting about all of these theories, including Herod's, is that whether or not they're right or wrong isn't actually the point. It's not the point. Coming to Jesus is not about being able to give the correct answer on the exam that you've been given. But coming to Jesus is about whether or not we go to him on Jesus' terms or on ours. Whose terms do you approach Jesus with? Does he have to become your pocket Jesus that does everything that you want him to do? Or do you come to Jesus on his terms? And Herod's looking Jesus in the face and having to decide, do I create the theories about him or do I, do I see him for who he is? And many did not see him for who he is. Many people even want to make Jesus compatible with all different religions, that he fits into their theory. Like some want to claim that Jesus is only for certain people, that he's for soft people, that Jesus is for weak people or whatever it is. But some people want to list Jesus alongside their role models. And like Jesus is kind of a companion to the role model that you grew up with. And so he equates to role models, but he's not necessarily God, but he makes me happy and he does good things for me. And so I'll serve him as long as he does those things. Which leads to the second question. Why did Herod start to develop this theory? Why did Herod start to imagine this was John the Baptist? And this is where this passage gets super disturbing. Like, I'm really sorry you have to listen to this this morning. But Matthew's like gonna give us some background to help us understand why Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist. And it, it, it comes in the form of this flashback because now Herod's, Uh, this whole passage is gonna flash back a little bit to what's already happened. Like, what happened to John the Baptist? He was killed. How was he killed? How did that go about? And now we're gonna get a little bit of glimpse of all that. And so we're gonna get a glimpse into the memory, uh, Herod's life, so to speak. And so to set up the story, if you look at verse three and four, he says, for Herod had seized John and he bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful, for you to have her. And so you're given a little bit of context here um, for Herod's connection with John. So what we need to know about Herod is that he didn't really believe in a lot of restraint. Like if he wanted something, he was powerful enough that he could just go get it, which is why Herod had no problem seducing and marrying his sister-in-law, his half, the half, um, his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias, while his brother is actually off away on a trip to Rome. So he just like commandeers his brother's wife. 
And knowingly, like John the Baptist knows, this violates Jewish law, which is why John shows up. And John, as you know, was not a timid guy, John the Baptist. He called things exactly how they were, which unsurprisingly got him into trouble with Herod's new lady, this Herodias. Like she didn't dig the fact that now this guy's stepping in and he's saying, he's calling out the law that's being broken. He's looking him in the face. And she didn't like the fact that John is now ranting and raving to everybody about the evil of this relationship that he's in. And so she rails on her brother-in-law, husband, until he does something about it, which eventually ends up, he ends up throwing John the Baptist in prison. And then we read in Matthew 14, 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. They held Jesus to be a prophet. And so Herod initially acts because his wife Herodias forces him to, and then he decides he wants to take things further, but then he's restrained by the demands of these people, and he's living in fear, and so it's so interesting when you see this guy that has so much control and so much power, but yet does not seem to be in control himself, right? Like, he, he can do whatever he wants, but yet he's succumbing to what the people want and what his wife wants, and he's doing whatever everybody else is wanting, and he's feeling a little, uh, like, conflicted inside and, and then doing whatever he can do to please the people that are around him. Like, he's actually this insecure man that's prone to fear. And then you come up to this birthday party. So I want you guys to buckle up for a second, because this birthday party is not very churchy, Right? So verse six, it says, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So in order to understand what's going on here, you have to understand that in the ancient world, these birthday celebrations were nothing like today. It wasn't like invite some bros over and let's have some cake, right? These birthday celebrations involved Gentiles, they involved pagans, they were celebrations. Like, actually, the Orthodox Jews would have considered these celebrations fairly shameful. Like, there's no way they would have wanted to be a part of these. And so when Matthew writes Herod's birthday, he's giving us a glimpse into this gross celebration, like, full of all kinds of debaucherous things. Like, these Roman officials would literally throw themselves these crazy birthday parties. And so you need to picture, like, an out-of-control party not a birthday cake sort of party, right? So you can picture it or not picture it, but think lots of booze, think like lots of women, food, sex, like the whole nine yards. And it's this environment that Herodias, his new wife, sends her 12 to 14 year old daughter, his niece, in to dance for her uncle. It's a messed up situation. And so you've got this context, like if this, does this make you uncomfortable? Because it kind of should, it's gross, right? But we know from the, the Jewish historian Josephus that this girl's name was Salome, and that Salome goes out and she dances for her uncle. And you read there in the book of Matthew that she pleased Herod. Now, I don't want to get too graphic, but the word translated as please literally means like he was sexually aroused. Like, if you weren't uncomfortable before, you are now. So picture Herod. He's literally eating too much. He's drinking too much. He's out of control. So is his wife, who's basically manipulating Herod through his teenage niece, probably not an amazing situation to be in, especially for a man who has tons of power, who has all kinds of people around him at this party that are egging him on, who are scratching his ego, giving him what he wants. It's not a good spot for a man with all this power. But here's the reality, is Herod is done at this point. 
Like he's done. The, this girl's got him wrapped around his fi- her finger, and according to Mark's gospel, Herod actually offers her whatever it is she wants. He says she can have up to half of his kingdom. Like, what do you want? Tell me what you want. You can have up to half of my kingdom. Like, he's just given in. He's totally done. He's willing to cast it all in for this 12 to 14-year-old girl. I was reading this, uh, this article this week, and it was talking about the fact that Germans have this word for this. It's called um, schnapsity. Have you guys heard this word before? And it literally means uh, liquor idea. Like, Herod's got this liquor idea, right? Like, he's so in the moment, so consumed by all these things that he's willing to do whatever he wants to please himself. He's willing to give away half of his kingdom. Think about this. A powerful man willing to give up half of his kingdom. And so the girl runs to her mom and she says, he's willing to give me all this. What do you think I should ask for him? He said he'd give me anything. And then verse eight says, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herodias is literally so filled with hate for John the Baptist that what she wants more than anything, even up to half the kingdom, is to actually see John the Baptist's head on a platter, to see him executed. And then look at Herod's reaction at this point. What's it say? It says, and the king was sorry that there was some level of remorse. And it's so interesting. It's interesting that Matthew would, would write this because We just read a few verses prior that Herod wanted to put him to death, but held back because he feared the people. And now we read that he's sorry, that there's some level of remorse. And it's possible that the evil of the situation was so heavy that even Herod himself just wanted to back up a little bit. Like he's feeling remorse for what it is he's doing. And the reality is that Herod's fear and Herod's pride had literally wedged him in between a rock and a hard place. Which is why Matthew writes in the second part here in verse 9 and 11, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And so check this out. The the half-hearted, regret-filled command that that came from this weak, cowardly, drunken, lust-filled ruler literally marked the end of John the Baptist's life. Like, that's what did John the Baptist in. John's life of devotion and obedience to the Lord literally lead him here to lose his life by a man who's just given in to all his sensualities and all his desires and his fears and his insecurities. He's given into it all. And that's how John the Baptist loses his life. In Luke's gospel account, it says that Herod was perplexed by what he heard about Jesus about his mighty works. And more than likely, Herod thought that John the Baptist was actually here to seek revenge against Herod for the fact that he had killed him prior. This man was filled with anxiety, and his perception of who Jesus was was literally born out of this projection of his own fear, a projection of his own guilt. And this is why Herod did what he did with Jesus. This was Herod's attempt at barely, basically keeping control Like it was driven by fear for his throne, fear for his reputation, fear for his peers that turned into this totally unstable man living this guilty, um, having this guilty conscience, living this guilt-filled life. And for Herod, Jesus was sort of the sum of all his fears. 
He was this man so given over to his vices and his ambitions and his pride and his anxieties that he had no room for a savior in his life. He only had room for a God to get him out. But he was so blinded by fear that he had no ability to see the light of true freedom. And there's a question for us here today. I think if there was one question I could ask you, it would be, what about you? Like, what theories, what boxes have you put Jesus in? Have you made him into your own savior, or do you literally come to him for who he is on Jesus' terms? Like, where does your perception of Jesus come from? You, you may even call him Lord. You may call him God and Savior, but what does he look like to you? And it's very possible that even for Christians, that we can do exactly what Herod did. And I think sometimes we can so easily project ourselves and project our perspectives onto the image of God when we're forming opinions about him ourselves. And this is why when you're feeling confused and you're feeling anxious and you're feeling unstable, you start to imagine that God is sort of cold, that he's aloof, that God's unfeeling. It's why our arrogance, like we can sometimes just think of Jesus as a sidekick or think of Jesus as a cheerleader that just wants to root us on. It's why, why when we're riddled with guilt or insecurity, we can just think, man, he's just always disappointed with me or he's always angry with me. And we can be driven by these projections of Jesus by almost anything, by lust, by envy, by pride, weakness, you name it. We project these onto Jesus. And some of us this morning, like, find ourselves at dark places right now. Like, to be honest with you, I know it's true of me. Where most of my anger towards God comes simply because he doesn't live up to my expectations that I've put on him. And it's never once been about him being unfaithful to his own word. But he's been really unfaithful to my word, hasn't he? Most of my confusion with God, like, why don't you do this or that, stems from the expectations that I've built into this sort of theory of Jesus, which is basically just a projection of myself. Like, I'm making him in my own image, and I know I struggle with this at times, and it's always in the struggle that, um, you know, honestly, my, my wife will say things sometimes to me where I'm like, I'll preach a sermon, and then maybe that week she'll be like, you remember what you said on Sunday? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you know, maybe you should think about that yourself. And it's always this piece of humble pie where it's like, you're right, you know, like, I talk about these things, but the reality is that I live in these dark moments myself. My insecurities and my fears, they get the best of me sometimes, and I'm left trying to figure out what I'm going to do with Jesus. But I once heard somebody say this, that God makes some people preachers because they just need more help than everybody else. And I'm convinced that that's probably the case for me. But I know from talking with so many people that I'm not alone in this. Like, we, we wonder why he doesn't show up like we're asking him to, but maybe it's because we're asking him to fit the mold that we've designed. We're literally pleading with him to let us play God for a bit, to take the role of creator in our own lives and make things happen for ourselves. And man, He's just absolutely refusing to play along with the role that you're trying to put him in. And I want to encourage you this morning that there's a better way. There's a better way. There's a better way with Jesus than by trying to force him to fit our mold. The reality is that we don't have to theorize about Jesus at all. We don't, ha we don't actually have to be led around by our feelings, by our emotions, by our imaginations. Instead, 
my encouragement to you this morning is you can actually see Jesus for who he is. Like, it's actually why Jesus came. He's the most full revelation of God that we've ever been given. We just need to simply let Jesus speak for himself. We need to stop speaking for him. Listen to these verses. I just pulled a handful of verses about what God says about himself, what Jesus says about himself. And I want you to hear these. Most of you know these, but listen. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's existed from before the beginning of time. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Like, I could go on and on with passages of what Jesus says about himself. And for some of you, I know this is just like reiterating a bunch of stuff that maybe you've already heard, but the reality is, you guys, that as followers of Jesus, every single day, we sort of have to look him in the face and decide what we're gonna do with him. Is he gonna fit into my world or am I gonna fit into his? Who is he to you? What are you gonna do with him? And I was thinking about this this week, like, do you spend your time looking for him? Like, are you in the word discovering who he is fresh every day? Because that's the offer he's made you. Are you doing it because you know that that's the only place that you find true life? And if God isn't who he said he is, then we have nothing. He's everything. It all hinges on him for you. And I know we like to hang on to this illusion of control in our lives, but hear me out. Like, that illusion is literally killing us as a society. It's killing us. It's stealing from us. We were made to walk with God as his creation, not be the creator. We walk with him. It's his job. And I know it's scary to sometimes let God be God because who can possibly know what that means for our lives? But someone once said, we can't create the waves, but we can ride them. Have you guys ever heard that before? And one of the best adages that I love in my own life is just the fact that I always say, Jesus is riding, or Jesus is throwing the waves and I just get to ride them. Because in my mind, it just like sets up the fact that I really have no control over this life. But what I can trust is that he's gonna guide me every way to ride the wave exactly how he would guide me to ride it. Anybody ever surfed before? Anybody like surfing? I absolutely hate surfing. And uh, the, the like one time I went surfing, I went out with a bunch of guys who were great surfers. And we get down to the beach and these guys were like, they were always surfing. They're like, oh, we're gonna teach you to surf. It's gonna be so much fun. And or, so they give me a board. We hop into the water. They're like, just paddle out. I'm like, I have no idea how to do that. So, okay. So I'm like paddling, like trying to get through the waves. It's like splashing, hitting me in the face. It was like 
horrible experience. And I finally get out there. I'm like, I don't even want to go back in. You know, like that, enough work to get out there. And then they're like, all right, you just turn around and get ready. And when the right wave comes, we're going to tell you to start paddling. You just paddle and go for it. And I'm like, okay, sounds easy, you know? So then not even like 30 seconds later, these guys go, oh man, those swells are getting big. And I'm like, is that good? You know, like, that's kind of scary. They're like, yeah, we'll tell you when to go. You know, when the swell hits, like, we'll tell you to go for it. And there was like no instructing me through it. It was just like paddle and the swell comes and the guy's like, go, 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 go. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. You know, I'm like freaking out, like trying to get into this wave. Had no idea what I was doing. This thing starts to curl and I'm on top of the curl, like not in the wave where you're supposed to be. I'm on top of it, like doing it my way. I nosedive out of the curl into the ground, get tossed in the wave. By the time I come up for a gasp of air, I'm like, peace. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. I swim to the shore. I'm like, I'm never going out there again. Like, you cannot get me to surf ever again. I don't ever want to do it. But the reality is so many, so many of us live our lives like this. Like, just kind of grin and bear it, trying to figure it out without realizing if God is the one that's throwing it and we trust him to get in the curl when he says go, he's never gonna let you down. And literally that curl in my life has sometimes meant super deep valleys that were painful. And at times that curl has meant really high highs where you experience some amazing moments. And on the other side of it all, what you realize is that God actually does know what he's doing what I need to not do is try to create the wave myself. And we live in a society that just wants to fabricate their own waves so that they can ride them perfectly and never have a slip up. That's just not following Jesus. And so as you look at him this morning, as he maybe meets you in this place this morning, is there the chance that you've wanted control so badly in your life that you've literally created your own image of God, your own image of Jesus? Is there a chance that you don't see him for who he actually is this morning? And is there a chance this morning that some of us just need to give up? We've been fighting so hard, so hard to try to make life work and make it happen, only to find yourself tired and wrung out and feeling a loss of control and your anxiety is high. And just like Herod, you're fearing everybody and you're seeking pleasure and you find yourself at this place between a rock and a hard place where there's really no right answer except for Jesus and what you choose to do is give the people what they want. And so coming to that only leads to a life that continues to get tossed in the waves. So Jesus, I think, is looking at some of you this morning eye to eye some of these passages that I read earlier, maybe he's reiterating of the fact of who he is. He's the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And if he is that God, then why do we try to hang on to things ourselves? Give it to him. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for each person in this room. Lord, I thank you for their life. I thank you for those in this room who are devoted to you, Jesus. And Lord, yeah, I know that there are times in our life when we just need a stirring in our hearts. 
we need to literally look you in the face and decide, Lord, if we made our own image of you or do we actually see you for who you are and follow you for who you are? Or are we trying to fabricate our own lives, create our own destinies, make our own happiness? And in doing so, we've just ran so far from you. Jesus, I pray today could just be an anchoring time, a centering time where we work our way back to you, Jesus, by just acknowledging you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And so this morning, I pray as your church that we humbly bow our ambitions and our pride and our fear and our anxieties and our stress before you, Jesus. We laid them at the feet of the cross, and we ask, Jesus, that you'd breathe new life into us, that you'd give us the ability to trust you, to know you for who you are, this God that isn't always cracking the whip on it, but a God that loves us, a God that paid the ultimate price for us, a God who is pleased with us, that we can walk with you, Jesus, and not create a world of our own. I pray your spirit would come and that you would empower your church, that as we leave these walls, God, I know that there are people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our schools and God, there's people that desperately need a touch from the living God, and yet you've placed the salt and the light within us. And so I pray, Jesus, as we leave these walls, that we would radiate your glory to the people around us, that we'd be following you, seeking the good of the city, living for the glory of God. And I pray your anointing, your blessing, your empowering upon your church as we leave uh, this afternoon, Jesus, that we could do all of this for you, in your name, with you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys stand with me? We're going to spend some time taking communion. I'm going to have Nate come up, uh, one of our elders, and lead us in a time of communion this morning.